Hi, everyone, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. This is show number three for Wednesday, August 26, 2009. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and again, joining me in the virtual studio is my friend and co-host, Kevin Ma. Hi, everyone. So before we get into our, our news and our topics this week, um, Kevin, I, I had read on your Twitter a bit earlier that you were wrapping up some interviews. Yep. Um, you're working, are you working on a, an article? Yeah, um, I'm doing an article for a local magazine about an independent film director named uh, Jessie Zhang. She uh, did a film called Lovers on the Road, and it's quite a good film, actually. If you can have a chance to see it, you should, because it's a very um, low-key uh, film romance done in Beijing, and it's unlike very other, other independent films where they the directors always trying to prove themselves with the visuals and uh, the scripts. This one is very low-key, very, and she's a very interesting character to talk to, so I was just adding some last-minute interviews with her friends. Okay, so and when when do you think you'll have that article in? Um, it'll be out by October. Um, I have another article out in September about uh, the head of one distribution company here in Hong Kong. Okay. So two months in a row. All right, so well, when, when those come out, um, will, there, will, there, will they be in online form at all? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, secretly, if, if between us, if you, if you ask me, I'll, I'll scan you guys a copy. But um, other than that, well, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'll, I'll, because I'm here, I'll be able to pick up a copy. I'm just thinking yeah, yeah, about so. if people are listening uh, internationally, if there'll be a, if there'll be a way for them to access them. Yeah, um, for everyone else listening, if they send me a quick email, I'll, I'll scan them a copy. But other than that, yeah, okay. um, catch you on New Muse Magazine. It's in the newsstands in Hong Kong. All right, so let's get into our news for this week. Uh, first bit of news from uh, the local harbor here. Uh, Steffi Tang, the first Hong Kong artist to pick up the swine flu virus, um, came across this little bit of news um, a bit late in the week last week. So she is the first confirmed carrier of the H1N1 virus among the pop star community here in Hong Kong. And apparently she's been um, not quite as discreet and, and not quite as considerate as she should have been in that mm -hmm. she was going around and attending some celebrity functions with other pop stars uh, at a time when she knew that apparently her assistant or someone on her staff had contracted the virus and she had potentially been exposed and was in turn potentially exposing uh, other people. Is, is that your take on how this story has unfolded? Well, I haven't read much about it. I mean, all, all the media's covering is after what happened that she contracted it and also what where she went after she contracted it. Mm -hmm. So she went to the Kung Fu Cyborg premiere, which thankfully, well, I mean, which I hope she contracted many of the people working so they wouldn't be working again. But <laughs> Not Kevin, that's not very nice. Come on. No, okay, okay, okay. Alex Fong, okay, just Alex Fong. No. <laughs> well, according, according to the article, it said that uh, Alex Fong was notified by uh, some staff who apparently uh, he was apparently sitting closely with Steffi in the premiere of the Met metallic attraction Kung Fu Cyborg film last Tuesday. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said he's going to have a body check. And apparently some other stars like Sean Yu and some people she had been working with 
um, are also going to go in and get a body check as well. And, and you know, hopefully they're all, they'll all be okay. And I, right. I, ha- I, I like to see Sean Yu working again. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, I, you know, I've always had a bit of a soft spot, soft spot for Steffi. I know that she's not a, not a great singer. I know that there are jokes about her messing up her lines and in, in in concert. And I I just I, I like seeing her in in films. I know she's not a great actress by you know Hong Kong film award standards or anything like that. But she's she's sort of the one little starlet that I've I've always had a little bit of a uh, of a soft spot for. So I do hope that you know despite uh, the the idea that she may have spread this. Uh, that she can recover and that everyone else will be okay. And all jokes aside, I mean, I hope that people will now learn that if you have symptoms of the flu, I mean, I'm talking about everyone in the world because it's a worldwide thing. If you have symptoms of the flu, you know, wear a mask, don't go out, you know, everything is... Yeah. Well, and, you know, one... and this is the thing, I a little bit off topic, but I was just reading in the news today that the United yeah. States, they're expecting like 90,000 people to die. From this, and they're expecting it to spread quite rapidly once school starts. So, it you know taking precautions and and being you know taking this seriously, even if you think you've just got the normal flu, is probably something that's just all around good common sense to do. All right, let's let's move on a little bit of uh, new movie news that I came across today in the standard. Jet Li is making a new film, and this time there won't be any martial arts in it. He's going to try and make a straight film, and I, from what I I read, it looks like this is going to be a drama. And the film is called Ocean Paradise, and it's set to be released next year. So, Kevin, what do you think about this? Do you think that Jet Li's got the acting chops to sort of pull off a dramatic role with out letting any fists fly or throwing out any no shadow kicks? I think Warlords was a very good step in the direction of Jet Li being a real actor. But if we if we learn from Jackie Chan, his only his last dramatic attempt was Shinjuku incident. But then he was in charge of that film and I think Jet Li won't have as much power. So hopefully he'll do better than Jackie Chan did on Shinjuku. Mm. Well, I, you know, I, not not to to discount him uh, because I do think that he does, you know, he does carry some very strong performances in some of his films. But I recall back some years back, Jackie Chan had also said that he was going to take a break. He wasn't going to do any more um, Kung Fu films. He was going to do, do any more action films and he was going to do a straight comedy film. And then the very next thing that came out was the tuxedo, uh, which, you know, was Half an action film. film. And then I, I believe the one following that was Around the World in 80 Days, in which he was also doing quite a bit of action. And I just wonder if, you know, these stars get known for doing certain types of roles. And I mean, we've seen, I know that he did Crime Story some years back in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh, which was, the I, I guess, based on the true story of some kidnappings that had gone on at the time. And you mentioned Shinji, Shinjuku Incident and... Um, the new police story. I thought he did quite well in that as well. Um, so I think he can, but I, it seems like that, especially in Hollywood, they don't want to give him a chance to try and 
do something a little bit different uh, than what the audience is typically known for, has typically known him for. Yeah, and I think Jet Li tried to do the dramatic thing with uh, Danny the Dog, or I think in America it was called Unleash. Unleashed, and, yeah. Yeah, and it didn't do very well there, but I thought it was a very good film. So a little bit of news from around the globe. Uh, apparently there was a film festival, a sort of a mini festival in, in the UK, and uh, they were doing, they were showing the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings. I all three of them? Yeah, all of, all of them together. Oh, wow. And I'm not sure exactly when, but it, at some point, uh, Sir Ian McKellen came out and gave, <clears throat> gave a talk, and he basically confirmed that he's been signed as Gandalf for the two Hobbit films that are coming out. And he also mentioned that the role of Bilbo has been cast, but at least in the article I was reading, uh, at the time, it had not mentioned he did he he did not say who the person was, but he said that he was very pleased with the person that had been selected for that role. So for Tolkien fans out there, that's a little bit of good news. Um, I think it would have been a travesty if they'd gotten somebody else for Gandalf uh, for sure, because I mean, he really brings a strong presence and he he becomes that role. So. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I thought, you know, um, Guillermo del Toro signing up was a very good first step. And now with Ian McKellen returning, I think it's just sounding better and better to me. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm still, I'm, for me, the jury's still out about the fact that they're splitting it into two films. You know, I, I kind of have an idea of where I think they'll split it, but I don't know. I, I'm still not really sold on the fact that they need, they really need to do that. Um, the Hobbit's a much shorter book than... Uh, any of the, the the fellowship books were so. I don't know. We'll just have to see what they what they do with it. But it's definitely good news that he he'll be returning for those roles. Uh, the Avatar trailer premiere. Now we talked about this a little bit last week. It was it was actually occurring right when we were sort of signing off at the end of the show, and I attempted. I know I remember you joked about hey let's go crash the servers, and I think that's exactly what happened because <laughs> I attempted to get on that evening and I couldn't. I couldn't get anywhere. Uh, near the the Apple trailer site, but I did get on the next day. I watched the Avatar trailer. I thought, oh, okay, that looks pretty neat. Um, kind of a got a little bit of a Starship Troopers feel uh, <laughs> mixed in with, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I, the, the the blue creatures kind of reminded me of the uh, elves from Warcraft. I don't know, maybe because of the ears or something. But I wasn't exactly sure what I was seeing. It looked pretty, but at the same time, I wasn't all that impressed with it. And from what I've read, um, this has been sort of the general consensus for people who watched the trailer online. Now, some people got a chance to see the trailer in 3D in cinemas, and they've since had a chance to come on and, and give some comments, and they said they were basically blown away by what they saw. So apparently, if you see this on the big screen in 3D, the visuals are much more impressive and leave a much more dramatic impact uh, in terms of what you're seeing, in terms of the depth of field and the resolution of the, you know, the the 3D animated aliens. Um, and so you you saw the trailer, Kevin. What what did you think of it? Were you are you impressed by it or? Uh, you know, I I like James Cameron, so I kind of went in hoping or expecting it to be good and. Um, I do believe that when people say it looks better on the big screen because there is just no way you can recreate 
that kind of image on uh, on QuickTime. Um, but I think right now it all really depends on what the story delivers because you know there's no doubt James Cameron is going to deliver something very nice visually, but um, I, there's enough people that are not impressed yet that. It really has to. How much money it makes really depends on how good the movie is. Yeah, and and as you, as I remember, you were saying before, this is going to be the most expensive film ever made. Three hundred million dollars. Um, you know, yeah. and again, uh, we talked about this, but the 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 old film Waterworld, you know, Kevin Costner's Behemoth comes to my mind, and you know, if anybody can pull it off, I think James Cameron can. But again, I I'm hoping. Later, I'll get a chance to see some some of the trailer in a 3D setting. Um, but what I saw online, I, I just can't say that it really it didn't really knock my socks off. Um, yeah. Well, and, bear in mind that uh, everyone thought that Titanic was going to be Waterworld. Yeah. So we'll see whether James Cameron can pull a, pull another Titanic. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll have to see. I don't know For the parts that I did see. Again, the Starship Troopers feel. Uh, didn't really, didn't really speak to me in terms of, you know, this isn't something that's going to pull my girlfriend into the theater, you know, uh, running and screaming saying, Oh, I must watch it again. I must watch it again. But I I could be wrong. You know, it's, we're, we're in the post millennium now, so anything's possible. Um, you wanted to talk a little bit about another film, uh, coming from Christopher Nolan, uh, that's called Inception. And Christopher Nolan is famous for being the director of The Dark Knight, which did so well. Um, Kevin, do you want to talk a little bit about Inception? Do you know much more about it um, beyond what's being shown in the trailer? No, I mean, he's really being secretive about the plot, but it just makes me more excited than ever. I mean, Warner Brothers is throwing in $200 million. Um, It's Christopher's big Nolan's big follow-up to Dark Knight and you know it's him doing the sci-fi thing and what where I saw I don't know how many of you saw the teaser have you seen the teaser Paul uh, yeah I, I watched it um yeah. I saw Leonardo DiCaprio I saw a glass with some tilting water and some buildings yeah. that looked like gravity was kind of being messed up and by that point I wasn't really sure what I was seeing I it it kind of had a matrix feel but then from I guess what was going on in the narrative, it said something about um, it's happening in your mind or, or it's happening yeah. in dreams or something. And I'm thinking, is this kind of like the old dreamscape back from the 1980s? Um, so I wasn't really sure what I was seeing. Um, mm-hmm. But again, the fact that it's got Christopher Nolan attached does bear some level of excitement with it. And I think Christopher Nolan really is the most consistent director in the last 10 years. I haven't seen one, seen one bad movie from him. Even his minor effort, like, say, The Prestige or mm. Insomnia, they're very good films. Mm. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, we'll have to look forward to that. Our final bit of news, a little bit of sad news that um, occurred last week. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, and that is the passing of film director John Hughes. Um, now, for many Americans, like myself, people in my generation... His films were very, very formative. Uh, they came about during our high school or in some academic systems, what would, be, what would be secondary school or our teenage years. And they had a very strong impact on me and many of my classmates. I can remember going to the cinema and seeing his film, Sixteen Candles. It was the first time I'd seen Anthony Michael Hall or Molly Ringwald. And 
really literally sitting there feeling that uh, here's a film that's speaking to me. It's speaking my language. It's talking about the things that are happening to me right now, you know, in high school, the cliques and the way people treat you. And all of these things were sort of compressed in there. And he did it with a, with a, with a sense of humor and style at the same time that was really talking very specifically to the generation I was in. I remember trying to show that film my grandparents at one point I had wanted I said hey here you know and, and VHS was getting pretty popular at the time and, and I bought the film and I said here watch this you'll understand you know my generation people my age and my my grandparents wouldn't watch it they they got like <laughs> 10 minutes into it and they just you know they, they didn't want to watch any more of it they, they couldn't it wasn't speaking to them the same way that it was speaking to me well, I think that even now, I mean, John Hughes was a wittier and better writer and director than, say, the American Pie directors. I think they didn't. He didn't have to go the crude way. I think even now, he's his films are still very well written and very well directed. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, he had a he had a real sensibility for tapping into um, certain types of humor, and even even his films that weren't so well regarded. Um, the ones that he did that were sort of outside of the spectrum of high school, the ones he did with John Candy, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is still a very, um, very favorite classic holiday film for many people. Um, he, he just had this style and this sense of humor. I don't want to say it was clean, uh, because, you know, he did, he did do some jokes that were crass for the time, but as you were saying, it's nothing compared to what, a lot of direct the, the type of humor that a lot of uh, American directors go for in comedies that are directed at younger audiences today. So let's get into our East screen topic for this week. And that is the film Kung Fu Cyborg, Metallic Attraction. Um, both Kevin and I watched this film together over the weekend, and I'm going to let Kevin... Uh, give a little bit of a synopsis and a rundown of his thoughts on the film before I sort of jump in and give my two cents. Um, well, Paul, actually, I wanted to ask you, did you know the film takes place in 2046? Kung Fu Cyborg? Yeah, it took place, apparently, according to all the synopsis I read out there, it takes place in 2046. I don't remember seeing that in any of the, yeah. in any of the opening narrative that they showed us. I believe it was um, in <clears throat> the, when they wrote the final words of a certain character in the beginning of the film uh, the chinese text that's apparently telling you what time the, the movie takes place I in I, anyway I, I yeah i couldn't I must, tell i must i must have missed that because i don't i don't know if they translated that over <clears throat> i don't think they did no anyway so kung fu cyborg apparently takes place in 2046 it's about this good village policeman played by hu jin i think it's just by his first comedic role i, I don't know we see him any other one because I haven't. Um, he's been assigned to protect a robot built by the government, K1, played by Hong Kong's favorite Olympic swimmer, Alex Fong. Um, and I'm not sure why they decided to put the robot in a sleepy little village town. And then um, one of the police, one of the only policewoman in town, um, falls in love with 
K1, but before you know their romance can be explored or how it's impossible, then you have K88, another runaway robot robot played by Wu Jing. And <clears throat> he comes to town, starts some trouble, and so now Hu Jun, the the patriotic cop and Alex Fong must team up to stop this runaway robot. Okay, so um, what what did what did, what was your overall impression of of the film? It, it was billed uh, in the trailer as an action slash sci fi slash comedy. So I want to ask you your thoughts on where of those three genre blendings that it's trying to achieve where does the film succeed does it succeed at all um where does it fail it succeeds at nothing actually i mean it does blend the the three genres there is comedy there is one or two really laugh out loud moments classic jeff lao moments that you know people go to watch jeff lao films for but as a sci-fi film there isn't enough science there talks about you know freedom and robot robotic freedom but it doesn't really get explored there's some action there are about three action scenes but i think it's really it's targeted genre i think it's rom- romance mm-hmm. i don't know if you saw that fall um yeah it spent quite a lot of time on the romance section but it never really connected with me yeah i didn't feel yeah. for it i i think that i think that there was definitely there was definitely a push in that direction yeah. uh, at the expense of some some of the other areas. Uh, my own perspective was, you know, with Wu Jing, you know, you're going to get a certain level of action. Uh, you know, yeah. that's what he's really good at. Much like Jet Li, we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, unless you get a really bad action choreographer, you know, or somebody who just strings together a very weak sequence, um, he's very dynamic and and he 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 performs his role quite well. Um, the action scenes were quite good. The the comedy was was okay, I would say, but it sort of detracted from the science fiction aspect of it. I mean, you've got some scenes where, you know, um, the the way they portray the robots is a lot. It reminded me a bit of Inspector Gadget, uh, <laughs> the live action one with Matthew Broderick. You know, in, in that it's kind of it's it's bordering on nonsensical to get a laugh, which is fine. Um, but the sci-fi I thought was just really just it was just glazed on. There wasn't yeah. any real thought given to it. And and this is something that we can talk a little bit more about when we get into the main topic on uh, for today on, you know, sci-fi in Asia. Um and we'll talk a little bit more about it then, but you know, overall I felt that it it really was just an sort of an action/love story and the sci-fi element was there. It was painted on Primarily because this is a season when you've got films like uh, Transformers 2 and like uh, a G-Force, you know, which are sort of highlighting robots and, and, and technology and things. And perhaps it's trying to push its way into that niche, although it doesn't really think it through very well. Well, it's been sold very aggressively in China as the Chinese substitute to Transformers. Yeah. But it doesn't have the fun, doesn't have the humor, it doesn't have the acting, it doesn't have the care. And I don't want to say the Transformers has characters, but in in relatively, uh, Transformers have more character than say Kung Fu Cyborg. And you know, it, it it is it does suffer in some ways from the problem that we talked about last week, in that it 
it appears to me much more so much more so than in previous Jeff Lau films it appears to me that they're writing this one specifically for making sure that it's safe to get into the Chinese market it's got it's got that feeling of we're playing it safe um it's got a message in you know towards the end which i don't want to give away as a spoiler but it, when, once you see it and what that message is you know you can understand that yeah there this is sort of going along with the party line in terms of the ideologies that films need to represent and uh, you know again i from a creative aspect that really detracts from the film you know and and i i guess it's as a director you know jeff lau has to ask himself you know do i compromise and get a film made or do I not and not get distribution in China and have to worry about not making the money back and not making another film. So I, you know, it is sort of a catch 22 from a directorial standpoint, but it does really significantly impact the storytelling. Well, I think the fact that his last movie, Fantastic Water Babes was never released because of the, the Julian, yes. uh, the sex photo scandal. I think that made him even more, more scared, a little more edgy about about making something that's safe, and that's what happened with Kung Fu Cyborg, I think. Yeah, and and you know, to be fair, this really this isn't his first attempt at sci-fi. I mean, he has touched on it with um, a couple other films. He's played a lot in some of his earlier films with time travel, in some some aspects, and you could sort of categorize that as science fiction. But ultimately, those are simply plot devices. And a lot of times they're questionable because anytime mm -hmm. any, time travel is a plot device always rubs me the wrong way because nobody seems to really get it right. Um, I know there's a film coming next month based on a, a somewhat famous book. Um, I think it's by Audrey Niffenberger called the, the time traveler's wife, mm -hmm. which, you know, is, is uh, I, from what I've read, the movie suffers from many of the same, the same problems that when you deal with time travel, it, it becomes problematic uh, in terms of the logic. Um, but he has, you know, he's not totally new to trying to integrate it, but it, a lot of what he does here, I think, is similar to what he did in Chinese Tall Story. And it, it moves away from being science and simply becomes fantasy because the logic that's established, the science logic that should be established, they don't adhere to it. Um, mm -hmm. The best example that I can think of is you know, um, there are two scenes. One scene, in one scene, you said, you know, you felt this movie was really pushing the romance. And I re remembered one scene very specifically where uh, Alex Fong is K1. He's He cups his hands together in front of him like he's, you know, like you would do to, if you were going to scoop up water. And he's presenting his hands to the, to the heroine. And it, suddenly, you know, his, in, in his hands are nothing. And then suddenly a bunch of roses appear there out of thin air. You know, and you've never established anywhere in the storyline that these robots have the ability to manufacture things out of thin air. And if they did, why didn't they manufacture other things at other points, which would have been convenient, you know, that that that, mm -hmm. that might have helped them at some point. Um, so it's putting in little devices like that that don't really make sense with the logic. Um, uh, the other scene I remember, the people we were watching it with, um, our fr the friend who was sitting next to me, at one scene... Uh, Alex Fong is trying to send an M an MSN or an SMS to the, the <laughs> MSN, female yeah. character, and he's typing on a laptop. And I'm thinking, 
wait, he's a robot. And, you know, earlier in the, he, he simply touched a computer to fix it. So why can't he do all this internally? Why does he have to physically type on the keys or, you know, why can't he do it wirelessly? And then later, <laughs> towards the end of the film, we're, we're shown another scene where he actually projects like this computer interface digitally outside his body. And he's manipulating data and windows around sort of like Tom Cruise from Minority Report. And I'm thinking, well, why was he using a laptop in that earlier scene if he could just do this? And then why does he need to project it outside of his body? Why can't he do all this internally? He's a machine. So it, it doesn't really think about the science. And I think that's a big problem that a, long, a lot of Hong Kong films that have attempted to do science fiction um, tend to run into. But uh, this is something we'll talk a little bit more about in our main topic segment. Um, another interesting thing about this film, though, and, and I'll let you talk a little bit about this, is that the dubbing that is done for the actress, um, Sun Li, who's playing the romantic female lead, um, is done by Steffi. And, uh, you know, we talked about her being at the premiere, and this is one of the reasons she was at the premiere, because she did the voice dubbing, the Cantonese voice dubbing of this mainland actress. My, my big question is why? Why would they get her to do this? Why not get her to be in the role? Is it that she has no, you know, screen presence in China? They they can't sell her in mainland China, mm -hmm. um, or conversely, why not just have the um, mainland Chinese actress do her lines, you know, in Mandarin, or or do the dubbing in Cantonese, or get somebody who's not a big star? It just left me with a lot of questions. Yeah. I think it's a matter of using a familiar voice for the audience. I mean, Sun Li apparently is quite well-known or quite popular in China, so I could see why they cast it, her and with the whole co-production status, which means they have to have a certain number of mainland actors. But I, I could totally see why they use Steffi. I don't know if, Steph, if Steffi had a very recognizable voice, because remember when we, were, when we were watching it, remember one a few of our people in our group, they were debating continuously about who is dubbing well, who. Well, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was near the middle of the film, and... And I turned to the person sitting next to me and I said, hey, that's that's Steffi. And he said, you know, I think you're right. And the thing was, is that I think that that character up to that point had not had a lot of dialogue. You know, she was sort of playing yeah. the shy, coy, um, you know, silent type of, of right. character. But then she right. got this really big scene where she was spouting a lot of dialogue and the voice recognition suddenly kicked in. And it was about the same time that I heard you guys down at the other end uh, speculating about that as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I could see because Hong Kong audience, especially since they're trying to appeal to the young audience, they're going to want to listen to someone familiar, someone that they know. I guess I'm guessing that it won't have the same, even if it at least raises their, their awareness or gets them talking, whether it's Steffi, then for them, I think it works. Okay. Well, let's move on to talk about some West screen films. Uh, this week we have two films to talk about because both Kevin and myself have seen two different films this week. The first film is Quentin Tarantino's uh, World War II film, Inglorious Bastards. Now, Kevin, you've seen this, and yep. some of the scuttlebutt that's been coming across the blogs and the, the internets has been very positive about this film. A uh, couple things I've heard is, and one of the things that sort of put me off a little bit, um, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan to begin with, but I, they've a lot of people have said that the film is really a little bit too long. Um, what were your thoughts? I mean, did you enjoy the film? Is it 
Is it definitely a must-see? I enjoyed what it is. Perhaps I'll talk about the film a little bit first. Um, it's about a group of um, American Jewish soldiers called the Bastards, and they're essentially behind enemy lines to pull off a mission um, to blow up a movie theater. And that's about it. It's a Essentially, you just put the film in a, in a treatment. It's a very short film because there's not much of a plot. And the whole thing maybe is only about 10 set pieces. So why is it 152 minutes long? It's because Tarantino likes to have his characters talk and talk and talk. And then when they're done talking, then they talk some more. And then finally they get to some action. I think I read another um, blog that called it My Dinner of Andre, except Andre gets shot in the end. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I don't see I don't see Glorious Bastard as a complete film. Um, Tarantino does create some very clever dialogue and my friend told me that the stuff about german accent and german german um, ways of doing things they're very accurate and that's why for him it was very fun and even the dialogue in the european language and at least half the film is not in english actually mm. at least half the film is in french or german and apparently those lines are written very well so i can see why people like it i can see why people are very positive about it because you know it's fun in a way, if you like watching Nazis get killed, it's very fun. But to me, I don't think it's a very complete film. It's too much self. It's too self-indulgently written for me. It's very well directed at points, and again, it's very self, very well written at points. But it is Tarantino being himself all the way. Hmm. So it it lacks a certain consistency. Yeah, um, is one of the things that I've read. But that, as you were saying, and I've read this elsewhere, that it's really a series of very well-directed vignettes right. that have trouble when they're sort of strung together. But one of the questions I have is, is he, is he doing his typical manipulation in terms of timeline and editing and playing with the order of events that he's so famous for in films like, you know, Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill and um, some of his other earlier films? Um, not so much here. Um, there are cuts to flashbacks, and ex and in the script, there are actually very extended flashbacks that, are, that didn't make it to the film. Um, there are just little bits of flashback, but overall, it's very linear. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And uh, now, the other thing that we had discussed earlier um, when we were building up the show notes was that the Hong Kong version of this has a 2B rating. And there's a lot of discussion as to the film, so some of the violence in the film actually being cut to yeah. make that 2B rating. Yeah, now, I remember, sure. I remember back watching uh, the Watchmen film earlier this year, and that had, because they were showing it in IMAX, and apparently when they show the film in IMAX, they can't cut it. Right. Um, so the IMAX version was Category 3, and I saw that, and then I went and saw it again, at a regular cinema with a friend, and that was a 2B version that had cut had been cut. And you could clearly see, you know, even not having seen the original, you could clearly see the very blatant chops where they had put in cuts uh, because the action would just suddenly jump. Or, you know, there was a there was a, a lovemaking scene in Watchmen. You know, if you've seen it, you know the scene I'm talking about. And there's music that goes along with that scene. And the music is just, it's like, it's like a record. It skips ahead. So you can immediately tell that there was a huge cut there. Um, did you get that same sense with the cutting here? Yes, there, and in the Tarantino film, cutting is very, very important to establish the tone. But the cuts here 
are very abrupt. Um, you literally hear someone start a dialogue and then it's cut, or you would, or suddenly di next dialogue would come a half a second too early. It was just very, very distracting for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I rather. I mean, it's it's a World War II film. I know they're trying to get the Brad Pitt fan market, but uh, it's a Tarantino film. It's a Tarantino World War II movie. I don't see why they just couldn't release a category three because Kill Bill One was released category three here. Yeah, well. It as you as you say, it's a it's a World War II movie. Uh, how would you describe it in terms of being a World War II movie? Would you say this is a Saving Private Ryan type of World War II movie, or is this more like a Dirty Dozen type? You know, sort of a high action but not high drama kind of World War II movie. I would say neither. It tries to be um, Sergio Leone style World War II movie with the really long set pieces and the tension, but to me, um, and the whole there's a very very distracting uh, piece of revisionist history done here. For some people, it's fine. For me, I was like, I didn't really like it. Um, but Tarantino is obviously trying to do his own thing here. Um, so to some degree, he succeeds, but to some, he didn't. I think it was just a very strange film for me. So. It, it, by the end, your overall verdict, would you say this is a must-see for people or uh, something to wait for video? Um, it's too well-produced to just wait to watch on video, but I wouldn't say rush to see it. Um, try to see it at a morning screening or at any kind of second-run second, second run theater, any cheaper way you can, but you know, see on the big screen. It's quite well-produced. All right. Well, the second film we want to talk about this week is Disney's G-Force. Um, now, originally when I had heard about this film, I had, uh, some months back, I had thought, oh, G-Force, that's going to be the Gotcha Man series from Japan. And uh, it turned out that it's not. It's actually a story about intelligent hamsters who save the world. And basically, it is a very typical good family Disney movie. Um, it... it it has a lot in common, I would say, with Transformers. I don't want to give too much away. There's uh, there's some robots. There's a plot to take over the world. And you've got these little rodents that have been trained with uh, technology to sort of uh, work with uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigations and try and stop, you know, stop the the takeover of, of the world. It's, it's a very typical sort of uh, simple plot in that, but it's really entertaining, especially if you watch it in 3D. The... The visuals are very, very impressive. Um, I think they've gotten to the point now to where they never, ever need to use an, an animal actor ever again. Uh, I, th <laughs> I, I honestly think that the technology has gotten so good that they can simply recreate uh, any type of animal. Uh, so if, you, if we ever see like another Benji or another Lassie movie, I don't think they'd actually need a dog trainer. I think they can simply do it all digitally. Um, so the, the, the effects were very, very good. The story, again, very simple, but very clean. The humor, there's humor there for all ages. It does make a lot of film references. Uh, the friend who recommended it for me, who is not somebody who typically likes these kind of movies, <laughs> but he said, you know, hey, I, you know, I took, I took a young one to see it. I had a good time. It's got a lot of sort of in-jokes for other movies. So it's something that you know, parents and people of, you know, all ages could go and see and enjoy. So if you're in the mood for something light, you want to sort of get the bad taste of Transformers out of Transformers 2 out of your mouth, uh, 
uh, I would definitely say go and go and see it and try to keep an eye out for Nicolas Cage. He's in this film, but I did not recognize him. And it wasn't until the, the very end, uh, the credits, that I actually figured out who he was. And I was I was shocked. I was surprised. So he's so, not one of the hamsters? Um, I, I don't want to give it away. I, I, I don't want to give it away. You know, if if you plan on seeing it at any time, don't, you know, try, try and test yourself. Don't rush out to IMDb and, you know, cheat and look up who he's playing. Wait and watch the film and see if you can figure out who he is. Because okay. I, I knew he was in it, but I, I was like, when when's he coming out um so it's definitely it's definitely worth worth seeing especially if you've got some kids or you've got some young ones you can take with you All right, let's um, move on and talk about our main topic this week. And because we talked a little bit earlier about Kung Fu Cyborg, uh, metallic attraction, I want to talk a little bit about science fiction in Asia. Now, I'm a huge fan of science fiction, having sort of grown up in the States from the Star Wars, the Star Trek um, generation. Uh, I've always loved science fiction, especially good science fiction. Um, but I find that it's a very it's a genre that really lacks a strong presence in Asia, with the exception of Japan. Now, Japan we could look at as a special case because if you know the history of Japan, they they were the first Asian state to industrialize. Uh, they had a very rapid industrialization process. Then you also have the idea of the fact that they were the first and only nation thus far to have a nuclear bomb. Uh, the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so they've got that tied in with their history as well. And so these two things have sort of shaped their own perceptions and their own ideas about technology and using technology in terms of storytelling. So you do have a very strong genre of science fiction that comes out of Japan. It's much stronger in areas of manga and anime you do get some, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of Godzilla movies. So you do get, you do get some uh, films coming out in, in certain genres, but you don't get certain subgenres. You don't, you, we don't see space operas coming out of, uh, coming out of Japan. Very rarely do we see some, you know, post-apocalyptic stories. Uh, the ones that we do see tend to be very, very grim and, and realistic uh, in, in many cases. And again, a lot of it's really tied down to, to manga and anime more than live-action film. So when we look beyond Japan, though, when we look to the other big film markets, particularly Hong Kong, uh, Korea, and more and more now China, we see a really strong lack in this area. Um, definitely, definitely. Some, some really weak attempts. So I, I want to get your thoughts on this, Kevin. I, I, you know, what, what do you think are some of the problems with sci-fi in Asia and you know what do you think would be some of the methods for making better science fiction in Asia is it even possible that's what I'm wondering because I think one the budget just isn't as big as say Hollywood sci-fi films Two, the technology just isn't available and and you know even without those two things there I don't think creators in in the area has 
the ambition to work in something involving science. Now, why why do you think why do you think that is? Do you think that it's they just don't understand the genre, or do you think that it's a case of they just don't think they'll get the funding to to do something well? Because when they do try it, what we do get is we get things like you know the Avenging Fist or uh, Kung Fu Cyborg um, or or attempts that are you know even fall further short than those films. Because the problem with sci-fi film is that they never sell the ideas. They sell action. Let's say the Avenging Fist. Or I don't know what they were selling in Wesley's Mysterious Fog. They were selling Andy Lau. But they didn't bother to make the sci-fi compelling. They were always emphasizing another point, some other selling point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Wesley is, is, a, is a good example. I mean, here it's a... It's a character that comes from novels and has been written into comic books, and there have been several films. Not all of the films deal with sci-fi. I think Chow Yun-Fat played the role in Scared Stiff, and it was more of a horror. Um, you have Wai Se Lee taking on the Wesley role in the film called The Cat, which is coming from the novel called The Thousand Years Cat. And you, then you've got uh, a Sam Hoy rendition uh, you've got another, I think it's called Bury Me High, which is also uh, a Wesley film, but I don't remember who was starring in that one. And then obviously you've got Andy Lau's. And again, it 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 occurs to me that in a lot of these films, especially the Andy Lau film, the sci-fi is sort of just painted on for effect. And it that, was used for special effects, essentially. Yeah. Although, you know, I mean, the one, the, the best moment of, of the Andy Lau's a Wesley movie was when Wong Jing got disintegrated. I, yes. <laughs> I, I could watch that scene a thousand times. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. Um, but now, one of the things that I've talked about in the past with my students is, is that now that China is entering the space age, they're going to space. This was one of the things that sort of pushed forward science fiction in the United States. If you, if you look at the history of science fiction films, in Europe, it came out of the Industrial Revolution, mm. uh, the machine replacing man, uh, the, 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 the man being replaced by uh, automation. And so you get, you know, Russian concepts like the robot and you get a film like Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the United States, you have the space race, uh, the push to the moon. You've got the arms race, um, weaponization. A potential nuclear holocaust so you get you know the the doomsday films and the post holocaust films uh those genres that become sort of subgenres of science fiction um <clears throat> and so one can speculate now now that sort of china's pushing forward technologically um will that will they embrace an interest in technology and in speculative fiction it doesn't seem to be happening quite yet, but you've got China saying that they're going to try and maybe push to Mars, and this may ignite another space race because the U.S. has also said that they may they may be trying to push to Mars. So if you get a space race between the United States and China, maybe that will start you know igniting the imaginations of young people, and they'll start looking towards stories about space and science fiction and robots and things that are typically associated with that genre. I think the problem is that these, our generations, we've been 
so dominated by Western sci-fi is that everything that we Asian or we do or people do here in Asia just seems derivative of Western sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Me. Yeah. And um, even the last really popular Asian sci-fi thing I can remember is uh, the detective series Galileo, where a detective tried to disprove supernatural phenomenons mm-hmm. with pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it's a thing about whether Asian audience like their things closer to reality or... Well, and, uh, and yeah. you know, the other aspect to, to sort of look at it from the reverse angle, you've got, you know, the United States, which it has a very short history in comparison um, to a place like China. And China has such a long history that perhaps it's easier for directors to reach back and tell, you know, sort of traditional stories of the Three Kingdoms uh, or the Monkey King, uh, because these are things that people are very familiar with and, and that they know very well, whereas in, in the United States, the history is not that long, so they don't have sort of this rich cultural background to draw from. Um, I do have an interesting story about why maybe futuristic stories might not do well for China. Um, I, I try to keep close to the confidential confidentiality agreement I have, but what I'm working, I was working on something that involves the future. And it's a, a screenplay. It was a, and part of it, um, they go to the future, and we were trying to figure out where to say they're in China or not, because we didn't want to speculate what would happen to China, mm-hmm. or we don't want to show a too um, uh, a depressing future. Because uh, if you want to go, you go to post-apocalyptic route and see a country destroyed. But we didn't want to say that about China because it might not get into the country, mm-hmm. or it might not get through censorship. So I think some somehow censorship might play a part into why people aren't doing futuristic topics in China. And and, I mean, that's a shame too, because there's, you know, a lot of good sci-fi is, is looking at sort of a dystopian future where China plays a a very strong presence. I mean, in, if I, as I recall in Blade Runner, you know, there's a lot of uh, Chinese influence that you can see in in the design, the, the, some some of the set design of the cityscape, um, you've got a very strong uh, Chinese influence in the TV series Firefly, um, yeah. and and the the subsequent film Serenity, where you know it's a future where China has become sort of the superpower at some point, and yeah. as such, it's culturally dominant. So a lot of the language carries over. Although I don't uh, personally, I don't think they played up that aspect as much as they could have um, in 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 the show but there's a lot of potential there especially you know with the idea that china is on the rise and it will play a much more culturally dominant aspect in the future Uh, it's a shame to think that directors and screenwriters feel limited because of things like censorship Um, you know i in my mind if you can say we're going to tell a ghost story but it's all fake because it was a dream, you know? Um, why not just have a speculative vision of the future and just say, well, that's not real because none of that ever happened. You know, I mean, you could kind of use that argument uh, much in the same way that people are trying to get by with supernatural stories, which are, are not supposed to be made unless you put in this little last minute, uh, this little la- last minute plot device that makes it okay, according to censorship standards. 
Yeah, well, I hope that Kung Fu Cyborg is an exception, not a rule to future uh, sci-fi efforts in China. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to be fair, there have been some very good science fiction films uh, that have been attempted. Uh, they're not always executed well, but you can look to Hong Kong, you know, a film like I Love Maria. Uh, it does give a nod to Metropolis in some ways. You know, it's not, a, it's, again, it's not a, a great science fiction film by any way, shape, or form, but it does sort of acknowledge the existence of the genre, and it does try to make it its own. But then at the same time, you just get a lot of it you know, a, a film like Future Cops, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, it's more about Street Fighter than than science fiction, uh, but they're using time travel and uh, they're they're trying to tell, you know, stories that do bear some, you know, they, they do touch on, on some areas. So Benny Chen will have a new sci-fi action film out next year, I believe, City on Alert. I hope that turns out well. Yeah, well, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Uh, hopefully, if anything, they can learn a few lessons from Kung Fu Cyborg and move, move beyond. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about our picks of the week, uh, what we call our Flying Buddha picks of the week. And Kevin, you're going to start off today. We're going to keep with the sci-fi theme for this week. Uh, what's your pick going to be for us? My pick this week is a film that is not too unfamiliar to people who listen to our show. It's the Korean monster film, The Host. It's the most successful film ever in Korea, I think, in Korean history. Um, it is a monster film, not not quite the traditional sci-fi film one may expect to be. Uh, for those who don't know, it's about a monster that was um, caused by toxic pollution in the river in Seoul. It comes out and attacks people, and when uh, one vendor's daughter is kidnapped, the whole family uh, unite together to, to try and rescue the little girl. It's a very um, entertaining film. It's directed by Bong Joon-ho, who is one of my favorite Korean directors. He's also done Memories of Murder, and, and his latest film, Mother, is apparently very good as well. It's And my favorite thing about this film is that it's not only a sci-fi monster flick. It's also partly comedy, partly a thriller, partly a family drama. So this, this genre hybrid is very popular here in Asia, and it's done very well. Um, the special effects by the American firm, The Orphanage, are done very well as well. Uh, Paul, have you seen this film? Uh, yeah, I have. And it, it is a fun film. Uh, I can very vividly remember the scene when the, the monster actually comes up from the river and, and just starts eating people. And it was, it was just, it was one of those films that it goes beyond your expectation in terms of things that it does uh, with the genre. But I do have to say, uh, that, you, you know, as you mentioned, it is about a toxic spill, and it's the Americans. 
The Americans yes. are responsible because they're the ones that just say, oh, we don't need to properly dispose of the waste. Just dump it in the river. Those dang Americans, they're always messing <laughs> things up. I enjoyed that little bit of the, the political satire, you know, the Americans trying to create this fake virus to to blame everything. Yeah. I thought it was quite a fun film, and it's available everywhere. Um, yeah. It's been released pretty much everywhere in the world, so look for and, it in the video store. You know, it, it's definitely better than D-War. Oh, by, yes. By leaps and bounds. Um, oh, yes. I've forgotten that movie, but yes, it is much better. <laughs> um, and now you were mentioning that this was the biggest money-making film uh, of all time, but there's a film that I saw a trailer for when I was watching G-Force uh, that we were talking about earlier, um, and I can't remember the name because it's a Korean name, but it's basically Super Tidal Wave uh, yeah. comes, to, comes to Korea. And from what you were telling me, this is doing really very well in Korea right now. Yeah, it was a very big budget, kind of their first attempt at a big disaster film. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe 100 Day is the film's name. It's just past 10 million emissions, which is only the fifth film to do so. And it's still doing very well at the box office. Yeah. So um, it comes out here in the 20th. So we can talk about that later yeah. when it comes well, out. Definitely have to talk about that. All right, so keeping in line with uh, the Korean picks for our picks of the week, I'm going to pick another Korean film. That is uh, 2009 Lost Memories. And this was a very interesting film when I saw it. And although I was mentioning before that I don't really like films that deal with time travel, uh, this is one of the exceptions. And even though it does have problems as a result of the time travel, it's a very interesting film in that it pitches an sort of an alternative universe of today. It's sort of a what-if scenario. Um, and it sets itself up historically back um, before World War II and basically says, what if a certain set of events happened? What if, for example, Japan had allied with the United States instead of allying with Germany uh, prior to the Second World War? Uh, how would the world be differently? And then all of this is, is made a lot more confusing by the fact that somebody figures out how to time travel and go back and uh, cause uh, and, and perform an assassination that causes uh, the, this whole chain of events that result in this different timeline. And in this timeline, Japan becomes an occupier of Korea. They, they've basically annexed uh, the, the Southern Korean Peninsula, and they are the dominant government presence, and the Koreans have been, become sort of minorities within their own culture. And it sets up a very interesting dynamic. It's a bit of a cop film, a bit of a buddy film that starts off, but because one cop is uh, Japanese and the other cop has, is of Korean heritage, but he considers himself uh, Japanese, uh, working with the police force and, and the government and having sort of grown up in this society. But he quickly starts to uncover a plot and some terrorists, and he uncovers some of his Korean roots and uh, it, it gets a bit more into the science fiction aspects, but it's very interesting from a political sort of alternative universe standpoint. So if you like those kinds of films that deal with, you know, um, uh, sort of an alternative history, an alternative look at history, you know, what if Hitler hadn't died in World War II or, or there's, there, there are novel series that sort of follow these alternative timelines. They're very, very popular. Uh, and I think this film executes its ideas very, very well. Again, it does have a few problems with the time travel and things that happen uh, as a result of that. But 
the the acting and sort of the storyline that goes along with it more than make up for those elements. And it's a very smart, it's one of the smarter science fiction films, I think, to come out and deal with this issue. And it was a co-production, from what I understand, which is, again, uniquely surprising because of the Japan and South Korean relationship in which there's been there's been a lot of animosity between the two countries. And they only recently started doing some co-productions together and releasing some of the restrictions on the culture, the import of culture from each of these places. So if you get a chance, 2009 Lost Memories, I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. Well, that's going to about do it for our show this week. We're running a little bit long this week because of our topic, but we'll be coming back next time and we'll be talking about a new local film, Happily Ever After. And I think uh, within that time, we'll have a Japanese film called School Days of a Pig, Anything else on the horizon coming within the next week that you know of, Kevin? Um, no, I'm EEG, bring it on. EEG <laughs> yeah. idols. Okay. Um, so we'll be back again next week to talk about uh, the latest happenings in cinema. If you'd like to follow along uh, with what we're up to, you can follow Kevin at his blog over at the Golden Rock uh, on the lovehongkongfilm.com page. And Kevin, you have uh, other places people can follow you at? Yep, you can follow me at Twitter under The Golden Rock, one word, or you can also email me at The Golden Rock, one word again, at gmail.com. All right. And as always, you can listen to these shows on our main website, www.concast. That's two words with a hyphen in between, .com. And if you have a question for the show, uh, you're welcome to post comments or send us an email at www.concast. That's one word. Uh, at hotmail.com. We'll be happy to engage in some discussion over those. So until next time, we hope to have uh, some new things to talk about, but we wish you good viewing, and we'll see you then. See you guys. See you guys.